Okay, so lesson two, this is a short Bible study on Ruth. So lesson one was an introduction to the book of Ruth. We went through all the themes and typology and general introductory stuff. Uh, quite meaningful. Like, remember, the placement in the canon was a really big deal. It's a very theological, fun discussion there. Now, lesson two, we're going to just cover these four short chapters. It's entitled A Woman of Worth, uh, just like the Bible study. We're pulling that straight from chapter three. So it's only four short chapters, but there's a lot of beautiful stories in here. And we're going to begin here in chapter one, verse one, jumping right in for the historical context. In fact, I want to give you a lot of context, historical, geographical, uh, theological context to the dilemma, the drama, the plot of this whole story as God is going to direct all things for the good of this family, but also for the good of Israel and all of salvation as a whole. So chapter 1, verse 1 begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Or we'll just stop right there here and just look at the context. All right, so the historical context, we clear, it's very, very clear from verse 1. We talked about this at length in the introduction. This is at the time when the judges ruled Israel. So it's probably towards the end of this time, uh, where there's a period of peace, or at least there's certainly a transition of difficulty, of famine. And then we're going to see in verse 6 that famine has ended. It's probably a period of peace with Moab because, of course, this family of Elimelech is going to go to the land of Moab and they're trying to make things work. So it is in the time of the judges, probably towards the end of it, in relative peace with Moab. But there's a difficulty. If you remember the in the book of Judges, you've got the cycle of sin and mercy, as we discussed in that Bible study, where you've got sin, and then servitude, supplication, salvation, a judge comes, and then silence. Right? There's things seem to be good for a period of time. So we're kind of in that transitional period at some point here. And why? Because a famine, a famine is the key term or the key indicator, a piece of evidence that we're in a bad time right here. Uh, because, well, it says here there's a man in the name of Judah, uh, of Bethlehem in Judah. Elimelech is from this town, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you probably know, uh, means house of bread. It is the principal location throughout this entire story. It's really important how Bethlehem is a piece of uh, important real estate as a piece of geographical significant geographical significance in the period of the judges. Well, now it's like the whole the whole story of Ruth really takes place in Bethlehem, except for this really quick little hiatus at the beginning of chapter one where they go into Moab. So Bethlehem is really really important, and then Moab is mentioned here. It's really across the Jordan River. Uh, this is where the Israelites camped, the second generation of Israelites, they camped across the Jordan River before crossing over under Joshua. Uh, Moses is going to die uh, before he crosses over, if you remember all of that salvation history here. So Moab is basically southeast of the Dead Sea, and really any biblical map at the back of Bibles will tell you exactly where that is. Now, the theological context is important because it says there is a famine in the land. So as I said, this is probably a period of difficulty in the period of the judges because it's, and it's also very ironic here. So Bethlehem, as I said a moment ago, means house of bread, but there's a big famine in the land. So what gives? Like, why are you living in a town that's named house of bread, like the bread basket of Judah, so to speak? It would seem like this is named House of Bread because of the great crops, that uh, the harvest that comes in every single year. And now there is no great crop or harvest. There's a huge famine that takes place. And that's extremely ironic and it sets attention. Why are these people who are righteous, uh, certainly the family of Elimelech, and we're going to see Boaz and all these characters in just one second here. Why, why are they being cast off uh, to a foreign land in Moab trying to make ends meet during this famine? 
And that brings us back to the Pentateuch. Really, the Pentateuch is to the Old Testament what the Gospels are to the New Testament. It's really, really important to understand the Pentateuch. Uh, Those boring books that everyone skips over, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're going to give you a lot of clues as to what is going on. So when famines show up, typically speaking, more often than not, they're because of the disobedience of the Israelites. They're breaking the covenant that they have sworn to abide by. They've sworn to ob- observe and to uphold the terms of the covenant that, uh, that they made with God at Mount Sinai, and then later on the ratification at, in Deuteronomy, uh, plains of Moab under Moses. All of these things, they swore to say, we're going to follow them. And if, if you uphold the covenant, you're going to be blessed. If you're faithful to the terms, you're going to be blessed. Life is going to go great. But if you break the covenant then there are curses that are unleashed, all right? Because I mean, making a covenant is a really big deal. It's much more than just a, a real estate agreement with you and your neighbors, right? You know, you have this, this covenantal HOA document or something like that. It's way more significant than that uh, because you are made family by means of this covenant that you have sworn to uphold. So when you break family bonds, there are, there are curses that are going to be unleashed, So I have in your notes here a couple of references in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 11. I actually just want to take a moment here and take you to Leviticus 26, verses 3 and following, just to give you a sense of this. Uh, It's kind of a long chapter, and this is definitely the case in Deuteronomy 11. You could totally go to Deuteronomy chapters 27 and onwards as well for more of this concept of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Go back and check out the Bible study on Deuteronomy if you want more on that. But just listen here to to Leviticus 26, verse 3. It says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall last in the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last to the time of for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full. I find that super interesting. Remember, this is Bethlehem, house of bread. There's a famine. Well, again, if you are faithful, then you shall eat your bread to the full. So that's the tension and the irony that we're seeing. It goes on. And then you're going to dwell on the land securely. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down. None shall make you afraid, etc., etc. It goes on to talk about God's blessings, especially verse 11. Let me read that. I will make my abode among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. It's very beautiful. The whole concept of God walking with his people, it's very intimate. It's very personal. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Then Abraham walks with God, and Noah walks with God, and Enoch. You know, There's all kinds of people that are walking with God. That's friendship. That's a state of friendship. You don't really take a stroll with your enemy, right? So it's a very beautiful chapter. There's some of the highlights there, and it goes on in verses 14 and following to talk about the punishments for disobedience and so on and so forth. So my point here in reading Leviticus, and you could check out the relative, uh, the various verses that explain the same thing, is that during the time of the judges, they're disobeying God and they're breaking the covenant. And the refrain in judges is that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're playing the harlot. They're going after false gods. They're committing spiritual adultery, uh, spiritual idolatry. They're very, very similar concepts there. Spiritual idolatry is adultery against God uh, because God is the bridegroom of Israel. Israel is the bride. These are really beautiful images here. So the fact that there is a famine striking Bethlehem, house of bread, again, helps us understand the theological context as well as the historical context. You're in the period of the judges, and these people are doing really bad things, and so therefore the curses of the covenant are unleashed. You know, sin has catastrophic events. 
and we don't fully understand this as human beings. We, it really takes revelation to, to understand it fully, and we meditate on our whole lives. But we can even see in a natural realm that there's, there's a ripple effect. There's a domino effect to our sin. If we do something wrong, we can see that affecting many other people, depending on what the sin might be or how bad it is or whatever, okay? All right, so that is the theological context here. Why is there a famine? It's not just accidental or coincidental. It's because they're in the period of the judges where they're doing bad stuff here. And then it'll, it'll get resolved in verse 6. All right, so let's move on from that. Let's keep reading. There was a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab. I explained all this. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So really quickly, I'm going to make a comment here before I forget. An Ephrathite can either be like a subterritory in Bethlehem or it's a family clan. I think it probably refers more likely to a family clan. And that will make more sense considering the fact that this whole story is describing the ancestors of King David as well as ultimately of Jesus. So Bethlehem Ephrathah is an important, that's, I'll talk about that at the very, very end in Micah as it relates to the Gospels. Uh, Ephrathites is a family in the territory of Bethlehem. All right, it goes on. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, <laughs> not Oprah, but Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Both Malan and Kilian died so that the woman was bereft of her two sons and her husband. All right. This introduces the characters here. Elimelech means, and I have this all in your notes, Elimelech means my God is king. I find that really, really interesting because to my mind, that really indicates that he is an exception to the uh, theological atmosphere in the book of Judges, right? The, the religious... Um, irreverence uh, in the book of Judges. If you go back to uh, the the epilogue in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, uh, there is a, a verse that is repeated at the end of Judges. It's, it's an inclusio, if you remember, uh, from that Bible study. It means that there, it says there was, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Then in chapter 18, it's repeated in chapter 19, at least the first half is repeated. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the point of this is that during the time of the judges, they had no king, yes, in a very strictly um, like earthly sense. And they had no earthly ruler as king. But really to the point, God was not their king. And this is going to be very, very clear when you get to the story of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, how when they ask for a king like all the other nations, they're really rejecting God's kingship. So there's a lot to say about that when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. The point is, they have no king, not even God, but Elimelech's name means my God is king. So I think that might indicate that he might be a more righteous character. He's an exception to the depravities of the era. Now, he is being driven out of the land because of the famine, and maybe he shouldn't have done that. Maybe you could speculate he dies in exile because he shouldn't have left. Maybe he should have stayed. Okay, He should have stayed there in Bethlehem and trusted God. That's all speculation and interesting conversation over a, a pipe and a, and a bourbon. Um, but nevertheless, I think that you can say he probably is an exception to the whole horrible atmosphere of the book of Judges. All right, so that's Elimelech, and his name means, my God is king. As you're going to see, I mean, everything is significant. Places and names, uh, people's names, the, name, the, the names of places themselves, geography. It's so incredible to go dive deeper in all this. All right, moving on. Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant or delightful or my delight. This concept of really like just happiness, right? She's a pleasant person. And I think that indicates her character. 
She has a lot of love and regard for her two daughters-in-law, as we're going to see in a little bit, and certainly for Naomi. Uh, we're going to see there's a little attention about her name as well in these open in this open opening verses of chapter one. Uh, she na- she means pleasant in my delight, but that's not how she feels. That's not how she sees her situation, and we'll get there. Uh, Ruth, Ruth, her Ruth itself means friendship, or she who comforts or comforting. I like friendship. Friendship is what you'll find a lot in commentaries. I think that certainly indicates her character. Uh, She is definitely a friend for sure to Naomi. She's loyal and faithful to Naomi as her daughter-in-law, as her friend. I think that indicates uh, how others perceive her. Uh, The whole town, I call her a woman of worth. She's very friendly. She's she's very amicable. She's very comforting. She comforts her mother-in-law. She comforts Naomi and Naomi's bitterness. So certainly Ruth is a, a great name for this character. I also think in my personal opinion, the fact that she names her name means friendship and she is kind of the link between Jew and Gentile, right? Boaz later on is a Jew uh, from Judah and they get married and then their descendants uh, are the ancestors of, um, of King David. The very fact that you have Jew and Gentile marrying like that indicates again this concept of friendship. All right, this is going to be a big theme in the New Testament and Paul's epistles, the fact that we are all members of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile. Jew first, but also Gentile. And I, and I like that as well. If you're going to think of this in terms of the larger theological and typological context, Ruth binds Jew and Gentile in her own personal story into a, a, a friendship, right? Ultimately marriage right? with uh, with Boaz. I think that's really cool. So Orpah, uh, that is the other daughter-in-law. We'll read that in just a moment here. Uh, that means back of the neck or she who, who turns her back. Uh, that indicates, I think, her lack of loyalty. She's going to return to her gods and her people and her culture uh, and that's going to be very negative. So Orpah means like she who turns her back, very indicative of what happens with her. Their sons, Malon, means pain. Kilian means destruction. I think that indicates their untimely deaths, right? They die there in exile, unfortunately, childless. And so their names are indicative of their story as well. So let's read on then. There's the cast of characters. You see that the names all mean something very significant for the story. Let's keep reading on here in verse 6. Actually, no, time out. I want to make one more quick point here, a typological point of the fact that this family goes off into exile, and then there's death, and then they're coming back from exile. It's been 10 years. 10 is, a, is an important number in general, but also in the story. Uh, they're in exile for 10 years. So I mean, you read the details. Clearly, Elimelech and the family go out. Then he dies. And then it seems like 10 years go by, um, or at least the bulk of 10 years go by, uh, where it's just Naomi and her sons and then her daughters-in-law, and then all this time goes by and there's still no child, right? And there might be an indication here of infertility going on, and I think that's significant because a big part of this whole story, as I'm going to explain to you, is is, is the line going to continue? Is Elimelech's line going to be snuffed out now that he and his sons are dead with no children? What's happening here? Why do they not have any children during the 10 years that they were abroad? Is it that they're infertile? And then you're going to see that God is the author of life and he directs all things, which is really beautiful. 
Uh, but before I keep reading here, I almost forgot this point, but in your notes, I really want to share this other typological point here that if you look at the fact that Elimelech and their sons, and of course, Naomi, they go off into exile. You've got the extinction of his line. They have no children, like I'm saying, and then God's going God's gonna to protect them and bring them back. That to me, when I read this, this isn't in your commentaries, but when I reflect and pray about this, that sounds very familiar. It's another one of those deja mo- moments when you're reading scripture, like, wait a minute, you know, I, I've, I've read about this before, or in this case, it's foreshadowing of an event that's going to happen later on. Because the whole story of Israel later on is going to experience this very thing. And if you think about it, go all the way to the period of the divided kingdom, where the north and the south, they split into the respective kingdoms, and time goes on, and there's a lot of sin in the kingdoms, and ultimately God brings destruction upon them, and through the Assyrians first, and then later on the Babylonians come in, and then they exile the Israelites. Uh, the kingdom of the north, I don't want to get into all this history really quickly, but to summarize, the kingdom of the, Lord, of the north is pretty much squashed entirely for the most part. But in the south, when Nebuchadnezzar comes through to, comes through town and, and squishes, <laughs> squishes the city, um, there is hope that there's going to be a return. Okay, That's what's happening. So God's people, the Israelites, there's the righteous like Ezekiel and Daniel. They're hauled off in exile, and there's a bunch of other righteous people for sure who would be hauled off along with the unrighteous. They're exiled uh, into Babylon and into these foreign lands because of the unrighteousness and the in the inability to repent, the impenitence, they're hauled off into exile for their sin. And many die in exile, absolutely. And that's this indicating uh, that's an indication of Elimelech and his sons. They die in exile, but then God is going to visit his people and bring them back. That happens with King Cyrus, if, if you remember the story. There is a remnant, a faithful remnant that returns back to the land. Uh, God visiting his people is found here in in verse 6. I'll have to read it to you in just a moment here. But God visits his people and the famine ends. So that's Exodus language. We'll talk about that here in a second as well. God visits his people, the faithful return. That is symbolized by Naomi and Ruth who return to the land. But the whole people of Israel, if I'm going back and forth in these parallels, but the whole people of Israel, when they return from Babylon, there's a problem of fear of the extinct line of David. Right, the king, the king of Judah, the descendant of David, was killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, he actually, I should say, the princes were killed. Zedekiah, his eyes were gouged out, and he's hauled off in exile. Right, but the line was just like snuffed out. When they returned from Babylon, there was no king, and so there's this expectation: like, how is God going to take care of us? Will the descendant of David come back? Well, that, my friend, is exactly what we're seeing here. With Elimelech and his two sons dying, you have this expectation, like, well, or this hope for this, the new line continuing. Well, how is Elimelech's line going to continue? And it just so happens that this particular line of Elimelech is going to be the royal line leading up to David. So I hope that makes sense here. Like, you, you see the story of of Elimelech's family going off into exile and then dying there in exile, then Naomi and Ruth coming back and the expectation for a child. That's the story of Israel. That's salvation history in miniature going on right there. And then the fact that Ruth herself is a Gentile and she's incorporated into the people of God. And the fact that her son, Obed, so Boaz and Ruth, spoiler alert here, Boaz and Ruth have a son, Obed, but Naomi actually adopts the child as her own. So he's the continuation of Elimelech's line, but the Obed is not related to Naomi by blood in any way. 
either through Ruth or through Obed. That, to me, really indicates the future incorporation of all the Gentiles into the people of God, into Israel. What Paul will say is the grafting onto the, onto, the, onto the branch. The Gentiles are grafted onto the branch. They're adopted children through Israel. So it's really cool. I, I always encourage my students, you read these things. It's more than just a story. There are deeper things at play. Even what you would think are the most insignificant details of what's happening. This is exile and this is return. And ultimately, yeah, there's a lot more to say. There's, it's new exodus. You know, it's a regathering of God's people to come back into the land. That was what the return from Babylon was all about. And that's what we're seeing uh, is, is taking place here with Naomi and Ruth. All right. So I, I hope that wasn't too confusing going back and forth, but that is the fantastic foreshadowing of what's happening in God's people. And then it's ultimately going to be completely fulfilled with Christ and the incorporation of the Gentiles. All right. So now let's move on and read verse six. Verse six. 